that also means that the majority of premature infants, those born between 29 and 36 weeks, have no access and are left unprotected. That was Suzanne Stabler. She is a clinical professor at Emory University's Nell Hodson Woodruff School of Nursing, and she's also a policy advisor to the National Coalition for Infant Health. We are very excited to have Suzanne as today's guest on the AFPA Patient Access Podcast. I'm Susan Hepworth. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Patient Access Podcast. Great to be with you today, Susan. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about a topic that's of a lot of importance to new and expectant parents, and that is access to preventive treatment for respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, as it's known for short. And that treatment um, is called palivizumab. Last month, the Institute for Patient Access released a new report card about babies' access to this preventive treatment. But before we dive into the findings, I just want you to tell our listeners briefly about RSV, just so everybody can really understand the gravity of the data that is contained in the report card once we start to talk about that. So tell us a little bit about RSV. Absolutely. So RSV is a respiratory virus and it was first isolated back in 1956. It is the most prevalent uh, during the season of October through April, but other places in the United States, such as Florida, actually have almost year-round cases. It is very common and it infects nearly all children by the age of two. Unfortunately, though, RSV infection does not provide immunity, so infants can get reinfected throughout a season. RSV is primarily a human pathogen, but it's also highly contagious. It typically presents like the common cold, but in about 30% of children, it progresses to a serious respiratory infection and pneumonia. And as you can imagine, Susan, infants who are medically fragile, those who are born prematurely, or those who have medical conditions such as lung disease or heart disease are particularly susceptible to RSV. And if they are infected, the infection is more likely to result in hospital admission and significant respiratory issues. Some recent research has demonstrated that even full-term healthy infants are at serious risk for RSV disease. Um, if they are less than three months of age when they're infected. As you can imagine, this is very st stressful for parents, especially parents who have already experienced their baby being in the neonatal intensive care unit for an extended period of time. And then they finally get their babies home only to wind up back in the hospital with RSV. So it sounds like it's it's maybe most dangerous for these preterm infants, but it sounds like full-term, as you call them, healthy infants also seem to be at risk, which is interesting. I want to ask you, um, obviously, with everything that's going on right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, it actually sounds a little bit similar to RSV. I don't actually know if they are that similar, but can you kind of talk about if these infants who are at risk for RSV or if they have already had RSV, are they at any higher risk for COVID or what's that connection there? So Susan, we, we don't really have data 
But when you think about um, the people at highest risk for serious COVID-19 disease or people who are elderly and people who have underlying health conditions such as heart conditions or lung conditions, um, we are also seeing that those people, adults, who um, were smokers are at higher risk to have serious COVID-19 disease. So it kind of makes sense physiologically that if a baby has respiratory issues or heart issues, they would be more susceptible to COVID-19 as well. So our primary goal for these kids is we wanna make sure they have as much preventative uh, therapy as possible, including making sure they um, hit their well baby visits with their pediatrician and so that that way they can get all of their immunizations on schedule and we want to keep them out of the emergency department as much as possible. Yeah, that's a great point, keeping them out of the emergency department so that they and their families aren't coming back into contact um, with this other virus that's out there. And then I would also think just for conserving you know, resources to be able to take other COVID patients that we're not using those resources to, you know, readmit these babies for Absolutely. RSV when perhaps they would have qualified for the preventive treatment anyway, but they didn't get it. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. So, I mean, it's just to reiterate for our audience, I mean, this is a very serious infection for infants and young children. And Suzanne, can you kind of talk about the prevalence of it? Sure. So most children won't get RSV before the age of two. So it, it's relatively common. And for probably about 90% of the population, it presents just like a common cold. So they may have a low-grade fever. They may have nasal congestion, runny nose, that kind of thing. Um, but it's particularly serious for premature infants. It is the primary cause for hospitalization in children under the age of one here in the United States. And it causes a lot of morbidity and mortality across the world in children under the age of three. And according to this newly released report card, we're showing some concerning numbers, you might say. So what this report card does is it provides a snapshot of baby's access to therapy from January through December of 2019, so all, all of last year. And the report card shows that premature infants that are born between 29 and 36 weeks gestation are subject to pretty high rates of denial. Specifically, 40% of these babies who have commercial plans were denied the treatment, and 25% of those covered by Medicaid were denied the treatment. So can you explain to us why these babies are getting denied access to preventive treatment at such high rates, even though the medication is FDA approved for these specific infants? Sure. So unfortunately, this data only confirms what we as clinicians have been seeing for the past several years. These fragile babies are being exposed to unnecessary risk. And the reason is that these babies are denied is usually related to guidelines for therapy and eligibility that most insurance companies follow. Um, the group that you mentioned, the gap babies as we call them, earned that nickname because of the coverage gap they fall into. So insurers often cover the preventative therapy only for the most premature infants. So those born less than 29 weeks. 
that also means that the majority of premature infants, those born between 29 and 36 weeks, have no access and are left unprotected. Um, but the report card also shows that even though babies born before 29 weeks should most definitely qualify for coverage under standard insurance policies, they too are being denied. So these are our most fragile infants. Um, and one in every four prescriptions is being denied for these in-guidance babies. So now I kind of want you to talk to us about what these in-guidance babies are. Sure. So the current guidelines allow for severely premature infants born before 29 weeks or babies who are born before 32 weeks who also have chronic lung disease. And then any baby born with congenital heart disease, they can receive therapy. They should all get access. There shouldn't be any issues with any insurance plan. But as you stated, Susan, that um, report card demonstrates that that isn't happening consistently. There shouldn't be issues with coverage, but these parents and babies are left without um, the preventative therapy that they desperately need. Okay, so for our listeners, I said earlier that the medication is um, FDA indicated for all premature infants. But we've now identified what we are calling these in-guidance babies, those born before 29 weeks, those born before 32 weeks who have chronic lung disease, and then any baby that's born with congenital heart disease. So if the, the medication is FDA indicated, but we have these other set of guidelines, try to help our listeners understand where those guidelines are coming from, why they are different than what's on the FDA label. Those guidelines are written and recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, their Committee on Infectious Disease. Um, we call that group the COID. And the restrictions on therapy access for RSV all began back in 2009 when the COID published their guidelines. And for the first time, those guidelines were not according to the FDA approval, approved and safe indications for palamizumab. So over the next five years, what we saw as clinicians is we saw those guidelines become more and more restrictive. In 2014, the guidelines came out and they really limited the majority of premature infants to the preventative therapy. So those are the current guidelines under which we're functioning now so that only severely premature infants born before 29 weeks can receive it. So to recap, um, even though the FDA indication is for all premature infants, the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Disease came out and said, well, from what we're seeing, we actually think only severely premature infants or those born before 29 weeks need access to this medicine. And you know, insurance companies and, and payers are very quick to usually adopt these type of guidelines because it simply means less expense for them. They'll be prescribing and covering this medication um, less than they, they would normally if it was obviously being prescribed to all premature infants. So for our listeners to understand when a very reputable body comes out with guidelines like this, insurance companies and payers tend to usually adopt those guidelines and say, well, okay, even though it's FDA indicated for all premature infants, we have this very reputable body who says 
That's correct, but really we should probably just limit it to this small population. And so payers say, oh, hey, that's great. We'd rather cover it for only the small population than the large population. So did I kind of explain that correctly, Suzanne? That was spot on, absolutely. Do you then find in your work with infants that it really is the case that only the most premature babies need it? No, not at all. And that's what's so concerning to me as a nurse practitioner. I've had many patients who were born at that 29 or 30 week gestation mark, for example, and these babies can have long and complicated courses in the NICU for various reasons. And because of that, they are much more fragile and at much higher risk for RSV once they're discharged. Um, and it's not just my experience. Since the implementation of these guidelines, studies have shown an increase in hospitalizations related to RSV in term and preterm infants, especially preterm infants who are less than six months of age. So give us a real example. I mean, do you have any families that come to mind that you've worked with specifically that really show how dangerous RSV can be? Well, I have several, but one in particular most recently was a patient who was born right between um, 32 and 33 weeks. So he was a a little bit older and a little bit bigger baby, but he was born with a congenital infection at birth. And so because of that, he was on the ventilator for almost six weeks. He had very fragile lungs, and although he didn't require oxygen when he went home, he was still classified as having chronic lung disease because he was on the ventilator and on oxygen for so long in the hospital. So he went home right before Christmas time. Um, Unfortunately, He ended up back in the children's hospital within about six weeks with a severe RSV infection, ended up being in the pediatric ICU and was back on a ventilator. And so as you can imagine, this was particularly stressful for his parents um, and they were devastated and afraid that he was actually gonna die at some points during his RSV journey. Fortunately, he did not, but he ended up needing a tracheostomy and prolonged oxygen therapy at home after that incident. Um, It's unfortunate, but that is a really good example to illustrate that um, that little guy that you were talking about right there is a perfect example of that gap baby that we looked at in this report card. Um, you know, born after the cutoff of what the COID recommended, ends up back in the hospital. And not only, as you mentioned, is that obviously bad for the health of the baby, but it's also an extremely traumatic experience for the family to have to go back. You know, I think most families who have experience in the NICU, once they are discharged, it's a place that they never want to return to, you could probably say. And so they kind of think, well, we're out of the hospital now. Hopefully we're free and clear. And then when they have to get readmitted, it just brings back all sorts of traumatic um, memories and experiences they had the first time around. So I can imagine that that was you know, just as difficult for the parents, perhaps, even than it was for the baby. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for helping to explain this important issue. Um, If you have listened to our patient access podcast in the past, you know that we like to end with a little bit of a lightning round. So I will give you about 10 seconds or so to answer each of the following questions. (laughs) So are you ready to get started? 
uh, fire away. Okay. Summer is just around the quarter, hopefully. <laughs> what is your favorite summertime activity? I like anything to do with water. So I like swimming, kayaking, rafting, anything that I can be on the water. Perfect. What is the most rewarding aspect of being a nurse? I think for me, being a nurse and a nurse practitioner in the NICU, it is getting to know my patients and families and being able to build that bond and relationship with them. What is the most remote place you've ever traveled to? Well, I don't know that you would call Australia remote, but it's the furthest away from home that I've traveled. That is definitely far away. Now, do they have a direct flight from Atlanta or do you have to stop somewhere? Well, at the time I was living in Dallas, so I flew to LAX and then LAX to Sydney. Okay, it's a pretty long flight. It was a long flight. (laughs) Okay, and finally, if you had to give up coffee or candy, which would you choose to go without? Candy, absolutely. I can never give up my morning coffee. Okay. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for being today's guest on AFPA's Patient Access Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Susan, for having me. I appreciate it.